0: LA Studios. A heads up, this episode includes explicit and derogatory language. You're listening to Imperfect Paradise from LA Studios. This is part three of our series, Nuri and the Secret Tapes, an exclusive look behind the scenes of the LA City Council tape scandal. I'm your host, Antonia Cerejido. In October 2021, then L.A. City Council President Nuri Martinez walked into the L.A. County Federation of Labor for a meeting with council members Gil Cedillo, Kevin De Leon, and labor leader Ron Herrera. The secret recording of their conversation exposed Nuri making racist and demeaning comments about Black political power, indigenous people, and a councilman's child. When the tapes were leaked to the public a year later, protests erupted across the city.
2: Racism is racism, whether it's coming from a guy in a red MAGA hat or from the president of the L.A. City Council, it is unacceptable.
0: And Nuri resigned. Today, we're going to press Nuri about the specific racist and hurtful things she said on the tapes. What did you mean when you called them tan feos?
3: Oh my goodness.
0: A year later... How does she account for what she said and the pain and outrage her words caused? So what I hear you saying is that you feel like this is something that happened to you, not something you did. No, that's not what I'm saying. Stay with us on Imperfect Paradise from Alaya Studios. Almost immediately after the secret tapes were published, a team of us at LAist knew we wanted to tell the story of the scandal. We knew that before it happened, Nuri Martinez was considered by many a champion for the working class and immigrant families, an underdog. And then she sabotaged her career with her own words. She became a prime example of anti-blackness and colorism in the Latino-Latinx community. We wanted to get into the tension between what she represented before and after the scandal. We had assumed that Nuri would not want to talk to us. Our senior producer, Emily Guerin, found her phone number on Twitter. It had been posted by activists. And Emily left her a message. We were shocked when Nuri called back. We made it clear it was not our goal to redeem her or help her seek forgiveness. That would be for the public to decide for themselves. We were interested in the part of the story that was still unknown, how she experienced the scandal and the aftermath. But more importantly, we wanted to ask her difficult questions about the specific racist and prejudiced things that she had said on the tape. We wanted to know if she understood how much pain she had caused and why. After a month and a half of deliberation, Nuri agreed to be interviewed. We also reached out to the other people on the tapes. Gil Cedillo, Kevin De Leon, and Ron Herrera. None of them agreed to talk on the record. We set aside six hours for our interview with Nuri over two days. The first day, we mostly talked about her background. That's what you heard in part two of this series. We started the second day with how she found out about the tapes, on the Saturday morning of October eighth, 2022.
3: I was having coffee with my husband in our kitchen table, And it's about 9 or 9.30 when I get a phone call from my then chief of staff, Alexis Wesson, calls me and says, there is a tape. And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So at 1 o'clock, 1.30, maybe even 2 o'clock that same day on October 8th, Alexis sends me a text message and says, the tapes have been taken down. I said, okay. I didn't think about it. I was nervous, but I didn't want to work myself up too much. By 8.30 that evening, still on October 8th, I'm home.
0: I get a phone call from Gil. Gil is Gil Cedillo, one of the other two city council members on the recording. He goes, hey, you don't know anything about the
4: tape,
3: us being taped at a meeting? I said, oh, you heard about that. He goes, well, I just picked up the phone, and it was Dakota Smith from the L.A. Times. And I said, she knows about the tapes? I was on the phone with my staff that entire night by 8.30 or 9.30 the next day, which was now October 9th, there's a story in the LA Times. And now by this time, I'm getting phone calls from folks asking me what this is about. By that time, it's now clear to me that the meeting they're talking about is the October 18th meeting that the four of us held at the County Federation of Labor. And now it's like, how did, who taped this? Who, who could have done this?
0: We still don't know for certain who recorded and leaked the tapes. The LAPD is investigating the leak, and they declined to comment. But over the summer, Los Angeles Magazine and the LA Times reported that the police were investigating a former employee of the LA County Federation of Labor, which is where the meeting took place, and his wife, who also worked there. It's not clear if the same person who made the recording may have also posted the audio to Reddit and Twitter, which is how journalists discovered it.
3: By that Sunday, you know, the protesting had begun. I had people at my front door on my driveway shouting just absolute obscenities into my child's bedroom, calling me the C-word, you, you racist C-word, you f B-word, we're going to kill you, you should die. And it was all happening really, really fast.
0: So had you heard the parts of the tape that were circulating? I just had
3: heard the snippets. Yes, I heard the snippets. I did not listen to the entire tape until two weeks after when everything in my head had sort of settled down and I needed to listen to the entire tape because I needed to do it for myself. I had already accepted that this was so big that there was nothing that I could say or do to undo this and that I needed to step down, 100%. I knew that that there was going to be consequences that I needed to pay for this. There was no point during that first four days where anybody was willing to press pause and bring people together to really understand what happened and to ask for some sort of forgiveness. I honestly thought that on Sunday, someone was going to do that.
0: That didn't happen. Was there anyone you thought was going to do that? Yes, Karen Bass. At the time, Karen Bass was running to be mayor of Los Angeles, a race she later won. She's Black and is a former community organizer and congresswoman who represented Central and South L.A. Nuri had recently endorsed her for mayor.
3: During the first 24 hours of the tapes being leaked, she did reach out to me and we talked several times. She was very supportive. She actually thought that somehow this would settle down or blow over. In about one or two days, and we were actually expecting President Biden in Los Angeles that Thursday, and I was supposed to have a Latino fundraiser for her that Saturday as well. And when I talked to her on the phone, I'm like, "What do we do about President Biden's visit? Do I not show up? Like, "What do you want me to do?" She's like, "No, we're moving forward. You show up." And you know, thinking this was going to blow over."
0: In an interview on AirTalk with Elias' Larry Mantle, Mayor Bass denied she thought it would blow over. She added that even if it did blow over, she'd, quote, want to take a crisis and seize it as an opportunity. By this point, Sunday afternoon, October 9th, some politicians were starting to call for Nuri, Kevin, and Gill's resignation. Nuri was getting calls from people she'd worked with for decades. One of those people was U.S. Senator Alex Padilla. In many ways, Nuri walked in his footsteps. They had gone to the same high school, San Fernando High. He had been the first Latino council president, and she was the first Latina. Even their two families were close. Alex Padilla's brother had been her chief of staff. Nuri thought Senator Padilla could help her weather this in some way.
4: I was crouched up in the bathroom. Oh, this is so hard. <laughs> I was crawled up in the bathroom when I took Alex's phone call like at 7 in the morning. And he was really hard on me. And I was trying to explain what had happened. And I wasn't getting through. And all I kept saying is, but you know me. And I might have said, I don't know if I can withstand this. I'm scared. And I didn't hear anything back. Senator Badia
0: declined to comment, but said that he does not dispute Nuri's account of this call. A few hours later, he called for her, Kevin, and Gil to resign. In his statement, he said he was, quote, appalled at the racist, dehumanizing remarks. It was a really big deal when Senator Alex Badia weighed in. Nuri's political allies, California Latino leaders, were distancing themselves from her. Not long after Senator By the S statement, Nuri says she heard that Karen Bass was calling for her to resign.
3: I then got on the phone with Paul Krikorian and told him that I was going to step down as council president.
0: Paul Krikorian is an L.A. city council member. And so that's what I ended up doing on Monday. Nuri spent the next day or so on the phone with various city council members trying to figure out who should replace her. What strikes me about how you're describing those couple of days is that it sounds like you were sort of in like logistics brain. It sounds like you were still very much like, okay, I have to move this thing here, this thing there. But in terms of like sitting down and thinking about why people were upset about the tapes or processing, because there ended up being national conversations about what it meant that you had said these things. Like, was that going through your mind? Oh, yeah,
3: that went through my mind at night because I wasn't sleeping So the first thing I attempted to do is take full responsibility and apologize, which I know was not accepted at the time, and then fix what I had done. Of course, I thought about what this has done. Of course, I thought about Mike's baby. Of course. But once the phone calls kept coming in, I didn't necessarily feel comfortable with these people on the phone. I didn't know if I was being recorded. I didn't know if they were talking to the press, so I didn't
4: talk about these things with anybody on the phone. So the only thing I knew how to do is hand over my responsibilities as a council president and make sure that I didn't mess up anything else.
0: On October 12th, three days after the LA Times published its first story about the tapes, Nuri resigned from the council entirely. Her resignation letter begins, It is with a broken heart that I resign my seat for Council District 6, the community I grew up in and my home. And it ends, while I take the time to look inwards and reflect, I ask that you give me space and privacy. It would be the last time Nuri made a public statement. A warning that this next section includes a discussion of suicidal
4: thoughts. You know, if it wasn't for my mom, I wouldn't even be alive. There were so many times during the first three months of what had happened where I didn't get out of bed. And I remember my mom was so scared that I would hurt myself, that she would call me every hour on the hour. She couldn't come over because there were so many cameras. And I was so ashamed that I still can't talk about those horrible, dark, dark days. I, I think I would go to sleep, and I remember this. I don't want to wake up tomorrow. And then I would have visions of my mom burying me, and I just couldn't do it. I couldn't see my mom burying me. I don't know what's next. I know that this took my passion and my light. I don't know how to describe it in, in any other way besides, I'm lost I don't know what's next. I am not at all suggesting that all should be f- forgotten. Absolutely not. I think these conversations need to be had. But the sense of not being worthy enough to be forgiven or to be listened to was so hard. People make mistakes. I would hope that after this, people would find a different way to hold people accountable.
0: Coming up, I do just that. I press Nuri to account for what she said. That's after the break.
5: Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge.
1: LAist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events.
0: You're listening to Imperfect Paradise. I'm Antonia Serejida. When Nuri showed up at the studio on the second morning, she had lost her voice. How did that sound? Yeah, that sounds terrible. She said the stress of the previous day's interview had taken a physical toll on her. So we rescheduled for the following week. And I honestly didn't know if she was going to show. But then she did. Let
3: me just tell my family that I'm turning off my phone.
0: Yeah, yeah. In the first episode of this series, we talked about three categories of comments that attracted the most attention when the tapes were published. One of those categories was resentment towards Black political power and a sense of competitiveness between Latino politicians and Black city council members and other elected officials. A lot of these comments were made by the four Latino leaders during a conversation they were having about redistricting. Redistricting is a a once-in-a-decade process of drawing new city council district lines. Incumbent council members stand to lose or gain a lot during the redistricting process, including the people who voted for them. The way it works in L.A. is there is an appointed independent commission that comes up with a new map that the council members ultimately vote on. Nuri says they were meeting that day to discuss a proposed redistricting map.
3: The purpose of that meeting was to... Help explained to Gil Cedillo that what was happening in the commission was detrimental to his district. In other words, what I was watching happen is he was getting rid of large portions of his Latino base or Latino areas in his district. And what we wanted to be careful is to make sure we didn't lose a Latino seat.
0: Nuri defines a Latino seat as one where Latino voters have a powerful voice and can elect their council member of choice. That was my concern, and that we
3: were not cutting our Latino base in half and diluting the Latino representation in that area and to ensure that a Latino can win next time.
0: But based on the leaked conversation, it sounded like the people in the room wanted to draw district lines in a way to get themselves reelected. Ron Herrera, the union leader, even comes right out and says it. My goal
1: in life is to get the three of you elected, and, you
0: know, I'm just focused on that. So I asked Nuri, is it really about preserving Latino power, or is it about preserving the power of the people who are in the room?
3: I wasn't up for re-election that year. It was only Gil. And for us, it was about preserving Latino seats in general.
0: So not trying to create a map that's advantageous to Gil.
3: No, I, in my mind, it was more about protecting the seat of the Latino seat, not necessarily about Gil.
0: Yet on the tapes, they talk specifically about Gil Cedillo's re-election prospects. Gil lists a bunch of neighborhoods in L.A. that were formerly working-class Latino neighborhoods, but are now gentrifying and becoming whiter and wealthier.
6: I'm not good with anything that adds more Legion Park to me. I'm not good with anything that adds more Highland Park or Eagle Rock. He
0: knows he's not popular in those areas.
6: Valley's <laughs> a headache. I areas. I have poor people.
1: The, the
0: Instead, Gil wants his district to include poor people, La raza, who support him. When Gil says la raza, he's using a term that's used to describe mestizos, mixed indigenous and Spanish people. It was also a political term that was used in the Chicano movement as an empowering way to refer to the community. But as of late, it's fallen out of favor with some who find it exclusionary. When it comes to redistricting, other than redrawing boundaries, the thing they spend a lot of time talking about on the tapes is economic assets. That's their word. Things like universities, stadiums, airports, etc. that are tied to good union jobs and bring resources into the community. And the four are concerned that the Redistricting Commission might take some of these assets out of one district in particular, a majority Latino district in South LA that's currently represented by a Black man, Curran Price. They care about this district because although it used to be majority Black, it's become the district with the highest percentage of Latino residents in the city. And they think it will be represented by a Latino in the future. Here's Nuri on the tape. If
3: you want to talk about Latino districts, what kind of districts are you trying to create? Because you're taking away our, our, our assets. So you're just going to create poor Latino districts with nothing?
0: In particular, the four in the room wanted the University of Southern California, USC, to remain in this majority Latino district. They didn't want it moved over to a neighboring district that's also in South L.A. It's the district with the highest percentage of Black residents in Los Angeles. That's represented by Marquise Harris Dawson. Nuri had an alternate proposal for Marquise, and a warning: this clip contains offensive language.
4: So, getting back to Marquise, if you want to cut a deal, and if you want to, if, if you want to make like fucking boss moves, I would go after the airport. Go get the airport from his fucking little brother, mm-hmm. that little bitch, Bonnie.
0: That's Nuri suggesting that if Marquise wanted more assets, he should take them from Mike Bonin, whose district in the west side included the airport, LAX. For many people, when they heard the tapes, it sounded like the four were scheming to keep resources out of the hands of the Black community.
1: It really wasn't the words that were spoken. It was the underlying agenda which was the idea that increasing Latino political power would come at the cost of Black political power.
0: This is sociology professor Manuel Pastor. He studied the demographics of South LA, and he has a term for this us versus them way of thinking, Latino triumphalism.
1: What I mean by that is that if there's a sense that you're becoming the majority and that what that means is that you should act like an old majority, meaning that you should erase other people's histories, that you should try to dominate the political scene in order to protect your group. That's old majority thinking.
0: Meinwek told me that the demographics of South LA have changed a lot.
1: I think one of the real tensions that is out there is that South LA which was 80% African-American in 1970, is now more than two-thirds Latino. And so that's meant that the base of black political power, which was in South LA, has become a base where the majority of the residents are Latino. And so that creates all sorts of political contradictions about representation that were surfacing in the conversation.
0: I asked Nuri about this. I'll just say, you know, for me listening to the tapes, just the fact that you do hear redistricting talked about in these racialized terms. And it does sound like there's sort of like a zero sum, like us Latinos get this, the black people get this. It was shocking for the public to hear that.
3: I want to give you the opportunity to respond to that. That wasn't the intent. And I think, of course, it's shocking. It makes people angry. I think the Latino community, particularly the Latino leaders in Los Angeles, have been incredibly cognizant about not starting a war over these seats, that eventually these seats will flip and they will turn Latino because that's what they're trending. But we, as leaders in Los Angeles, have never engaged in trying to, for example, run a Latino candidate against an African-American candidate. I don't remember the time that I've been on the city council that I have not supported an African-American colleague or an African-American friend who happens to be running for that seat. And so that is, I think, the misperception about why we were in that room, is that there is this false narrative that we were meeting to dilute or take away political power from the African-American community, and that's simply not true.
0: George Gascon is the very progressive district attorney in Los Angeles who campaigned on ending racial disparities in the justice system. On the tape, Nuri said, quote, fuck that guy. He's with the Blacks. What does that mean?
3: You know, I walked in there really angry and frustrated, and it was a mean and insensitive thing to say. And I didn't mean anything by it. I did not mean it. And it was certainly not meant in a derogatory way whatsoever. He does have African-American support. And there's nothing wrong with that.
0: You know, one of the things that did come up was a conversation about a lot of Afro-Latinas saying and Afro-Latinos saying that the way that the Latino and Black community were talked about was like a zero-sum game. Like there's a Latino seat and there's a Black seat and that that would negate Afro-Latinos as a community. I don't know if when you say Latinos, if you think of the Afro-Latino community.
3: No, I can't say I do, but it's not on purpose because we often don't think of Afro-Latinos, particularly in Los Angeles, I think you see more Afro-Latinos in Florida, in New York, and D.C.
0: As of 2019, California has just under a quarter million people who identify as Afro-Latino, about 1.5 percent of the population. But the vast majority of Latinos in California are Mexican-American. In LA, 75 percent of Latinos are of Mexican descent. On the tape, they imply not only that Black people and Latinos were competing for political power and council district representation, but that Black people were better at advocating for themselves. In the tapes, Kevin de Leon compared the voice of Black people in the city to The Wizard of Oz, saying it sounds louder and more powerful than it actually is. He and Gil Cedillo also complained that if there are 25 Black people, they shout like they're 250 whereas 100 Latinos shouting only sounds like 10. Councilmember Marquise Harris-Dawson was surprised to hear his colleagues' jealousy and resentment of Black people. And he pointed out to me that Black political power didn't just happen.
6: The political power that the Black community has has been earned. People have been doing voter registration drives since the 1960s consistently. And so that doesn't happen by mistake.
0: Although she was in the room, Nuri didn't directly participate in this part of the conversation. But I wanted to know if she agreed with the sentiment. So I asked her, do you think Black people have disproportionate political power in Los Angeles? And do you think it's come at the expense of Latinos?
3: Not necessarily. I think the Latinos need to work on unifying our community. I don't think we have to blame anybody else. I think it's up to us to get people to turn out to vote.
0: One thing that comes through in the tapes is that there's sort of a positioning of, like, it's like white liberals in LA are allied with black progressives and, like, Latinos seem left out. Do you think that's an accurate— You know
3: what? I don't, I don't know if that was an accurate description of it. I will tell you that the conversation and other conversations we've had as Latinos is Latinos are becoming more and more invisible, and that is something that I saw not only in the media, but I see in politics, I see in everyday life when you turn on the television—
0: I can see where Nuri is coming from when she says this. Despite the fact that Latinos are the fastest growing demographic in the country, their influence remains limited. Fewer than 1% of elected officials in the whole country identify as Latino. But there's another story about demographic change that's happening here in LA. The city's Black population has dropped 30% since 1990. When the first episode of this series ran, one of my Black colleagues told me that for her, what this story represents is the continued feeling of erasure. That to be a Black resident in L.A. is to be erased. When Nuri, Kevin, Gill, and Ron are talking about those future Latino seats in South L.A., they're also talking about this other story. Those seats used to be decided by Black voters, and now they're decided by Latinos.
3: When you turn on the television, our stories are not being told. And when we do tell them, and when we are frustrated, even in a private conversation, it's turned against us. Like, we don't have a right as a community to advocate for ourselves. Because somehow that goes against another ethnic group. I don't know why
0: we do that. Nuri's expressing to me that she feels like what she, Gil, Ron, and Kevin were doing in that meeting was advocating for themselves as Latinos but other people made it out to be a case of four Latino leaders scheming to take power from Black people. For Nuri, this is proof that Latinos continue to be misunderstood. She was particularly frustrated by how the LA Times reported on the story.
3: I have always felt that as a Latina, I have never really been given a fair shake by the media. The coverage of these tapes in and of itself say it all. I think there was a deliberate, concerted effort to take snippets of the conversation and put them out to the
0: general public. So you think if it had been presented whole, it wouldn't have blown up in the same way? Yeah, I do. The L.A. Times, in fact, did post the full audio on YouTube within a week of publishing their first article about the tapes, as did Knock L.A. And later, the L.A. Times published an annotated transcript of the full conversation. So what I hear you saying is that you feel like this is something that happened to you, not something you did.
3: No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying this is a conversation that took place in a private setting out of frustration and anger for whatever, everything that was going on. And I take full responsibility for it. And there's nothing that I'm ever going to be able to do to express how horrible I feel about it. That's what I'm saying.
0: When we come back, I challenge Nuri about the most offensive things she said on the tapes. What did you mean when you called his son, when you said about his son, parese changuito? That's coming up on Imperfect Paradise. Stay with us. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. better on average compared to other leading e commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI powered all star. Shopify powers 10% of all e commerce in the US. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothies, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with shopify sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com slash paradise all lowercase go to shopify.com slash paradise now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash paradise the la spring super sweeps is happening now you can win amazing prizes
7: while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism
0: we're back with my conversation with former L.A. City Council President Nuri Martinez. The other category of comments on the tapes that we addressed in episode one was direct racist and offensive remarks. On the secret tape, Nuri insults former L.A. City Council member Mike Bonin, who is white, and his parenting of his son Jacob, who is black. When describing Jacob's behavior, Nuri says, changuito," which literally interprets to, he seemed like a little monkey. Let's talk about sort of like the things that got the most attention, the comments about council member Mike Bonin and his son. What did you mean when you called his son, when you said about his son, parece changuito?
3: The way I grew up with that word, parece changuito has nothing to do with the skin color of anyone's ethnicity. It's got to do more with the behavior. You're sort of just playing around. You're horsing around. It is travieso. You're just, you, you can't stay put. You know, I'm going to have to live with that comment for the rest of my life, I heard Jacob, and that was not my intent.
0: Had you used that particular word to describe children before?
3: Yes, in my family, yes. my in fact, my mother said that to me. But it says, Changita, See, si, mira como andas. You know, you know, get inside the house. It was common when I was growing up, and my mom actually pointed that out when the tapes broke, and she goes, but we use that word at home. But yes, mom. But my mistake was that I was referencing an African American baby, and I shouldn't have done that.
0: Why do you think it's different to say it about a black kid versus a kid of another race?
3: I did not mean it in a derogatory way, and it wasn't meant to describe him as a black child. That was not the intent of the word.
0: But do you understand why is it that that word specifically is offensive when talked about a black kid versus another kid? Oh, a hundred percent. No, just the why.
3: The word was not meant to be derogatory, and I was not describing him in that way because he's a black child. I was simply referring to his behavior, and that was it.
0: Would you have used that word in English? Never. Never have I ever used those words in English. It is absolutely true that the racial dynamics in Latin America are different than they are in the U.S. But this idea that changuito in reference to a black child is somehow not racist in Spanish is not accurate.
7: Mono, monito, monkey, little monkey.
0: These are deeply racialized terms that are not at all innocuous. This is Tania Hernandez, a law professor who has written a book about anti-Blackness in the Latino community. When we want to
7: talk about the ugliness of Blackness, the inferiority of Blackness, we use animalistic comparisons or we refer to the person as being like an animal. And so this idea of thinking of African ancestry as less than human and part of the animal kingdom that excludes humanity is a deep part of our racialized sort of understandings.
0: Much like here in the U.S., Latin America has a long and painful history with colonization and slavery there were 15 times as many enslaved Africans taken to Spanish and Portuguese colonies as there were taken to the U.S. Mexico, where Nuri's family has their roots, has its own particular relationship to slavery. Spanish colonizers brought hundreds of thousands of enslaved Africans to Mexico beginning in the 1500s. The country abolished slavery almost 30 years before the United States. When we think about Mexico,
7: Mexico evolves
0: not to get rid of
7: their Black people, they are there, (laughs) but to use rhetorics of mestizaje, racial mixture, to distract from and present the nation state as long having moved away. We once upon a time had slavery, then we got rid of it. And that's the end of the story of the Black people.
0: In Mexico, there is a long history of mestizaje the mixing between people of all races. Tanya explains that that story of Mesizaje can obscure the particular experience of Black people in Mexico and many parts of Latin America.
7: In some respects, it's even a deeper-seated set of racial pathologies because we have not been as open about talking about it. And if you keep something in the dark, festering, (laughs) then it Mm -hmm. doesn't have a chance to be addressed, let alone healed and resolved.
0: The first time I heard the leaked tapes, I felt deeply embarrassed. It was like hearing a family member make an off-the-cuff racist remark in front of a friend who's meeting them for the first time. My family's from Argentina, and growing up, I heard a lot of phrases that now I understand to be rooted in racist and prejudiced thinking. I would visit Buenos Aires and hear people referring to all Asians as Chinos, regardless of their country of origin. Until two years ago, I would use the word quilombo to refer to a mess, until I learned that quilombo was the name of hideouts for escaped enslaved Africans in Latin America. And my family would call my white mom, who has a darker complexion than all of her siblings, La Negrita. Here's Tania Hernandez again. So
7: the idea of why the most anti-Black stuff happens in Spanish on the audio tapes is actually not so surprising to me because that's how we learned it at home, right? Meaning these codes of anti-Blackness are very much part of how we both heard and were taught to speak about Blackness. When in an English-speaking operating world, to say that very same thing gets coded as racist. Whereas when we say it in Spanish, oh, that's just about being Latino. Oh, that's just about how we talk in the family. However, I don't think that we can then say it's totally off the table for us to examine the language uh, usage when we think through how, why is blackness something that needs to be remarked on.
0: I brought this up to Nuri, this idea that more Latinos should reflect on how and why we use certain racialized terms like negrito, which is how Nuri referred to Mike Bonin's son. There are a lot of ways that we talk in Latin America that we don't think about why we use those words. And I'm wondering in the year since this all happened, if like you've had thoughts about that. And of if course, you... yeah. I think in Spanish
3: and then I speak in English. And so, so many of my vocabulary comes from me being an English learner. And I think for me, those words are not meant to hurt anybody or to sound racist at all. I think it's just words that I grew up with.
0: On the tapes, Nuri recalls being on an MLK Day parade float with two other Black women, current L.A. Mayor Karen Bass and the wife of city council member Marquise Harris-Dawson. Nuri says they were all critical of Jacob, who again was a toddler at the time, and his behavior.
3: It's a conversation I should not have repeated. That was my mistake. I should not have repeated that conversation. And I thought about this a hundred times of what I would say to him if I would see him. What would you say? I would hug him. I never meant to hurt your baby. That was never my intent. It was a conversation I had that I should not have repeated. I should have just stayed there and we should have just moved on. But, you know, I said it and I will never, ever, ever forgive myself for it.
0: Instead of admitting to me that what she said was racist, Nuri's telling me that her error was in repeating a private conversation. Council member Marquise Harris-Dawson was also on the float that day. During our interview for this story, he told me how he interpreted what Nuri said about Jacob's behavior.
6: There's a line where she says they're raising him like a white kid. And, you know, what was fascinating about that was, I think she's exactly right, white children are allowed more freedom, or at least that's the perception of black people. White children are allowed to be more free— You go in a grocery store or a mall and you see, like, and, you know, under our breath, we would be like, we would never let our kid do that. But the reason for that is there's a price. You know, my mother knows, like, she had to train me not to talk loud, right? Because you talk loud, you end up locked up. Nuri was doing to Jacob what a lot of people do to black children. Like, especially black boys, they make them older than they are. They make them more responsible for their actions than they would another child of the same exact age and situation.
0: Marquise Harris-Dawson told me that the way you were talking about Jacob on the float is what a lot of people do to black boys, treating him like he's older, like he has more agency or responsibility than he really does. What do you think about that characterization?
3: No, I think we're just being critical of just
0: moms, just being critical of, you know, a rowdy kid. We reached out to the other women in the conversation. Carrie Harris Dawson, Marquise's wife, declined to comment. We also reached out to Mayor Bass's spokesperson, described the conversation, and asked for her to comment. We never heard back. All of these hurtful comments about Jacob were said in a part of the conversation where the four are joking around about how they think Mike Bonin, who is white, uses his son, who is black, as a political prop. Literally the word Ron Herrera uses a prop. Nuri says he's an accessory. Do you think he was using his son in a politically expedient way?
3: That's, that's a question for Mike.
5: I knew people thought when they said, oh, he's bringing him. They imply I would bring Jacob places for political reasons, that I would look good to, like, black crowds or whatever.
0: This is former L.A. City Council member Mike Bonin.
5: My little accessory, as Nuri put it. That sort of hit me in like, oh, on a level of insecurity, right? It hit me making me wonder, questioning my value as a dad. There was a little internal voice that bought into the questioning, the legitimacy of my family, right? On the gay level, on the adoptive level, on the transracial level. But I also knew because of being a transracially adopted dad that it is vitally important for me to make sure that my son is in places where he sees people who look like him, that he grows up with exposure to immersion in the African-American community. And so anytime I was at an event like a King Day parade or community events in in other parts of the city, it was always very important to bring Jacob. When Herb Weston was president of the council, I occasionally would bring Jacob into the chamber's so he could see that the guy in the president's chair was the guy in the room who looked most like him. And so I knew that those hits were, were, were part of being a transracial family, but I also knew I had to do it, right? It was important for Jacob. But it stung on a lot of different levels because, you know, transracial adoption is complicated.
0: Mike told me that he has still not forgiven Nuri for what she said about Jacob, and that someday... When Jacob is older, he would like Nuri to apologize to him directly. The next comments I wanted to address were the ones that most shocked and surprised me, given Nuri's personal and political history. In reference to Hawkins that Nuri sees on the streets of Koreatown, she says, I see a lot of little, short, dark people. And then she says, tan feos, literally interpreted to, they're ugly. What did you mean when you called them tan feos?
3: Oh my goodness, that's another, you know, thing that I will never forgive myself for. That was just a horrible, insensitive thing to say. I certainly don't have anything against the Oaxacan community. I've never been to Oaxaca, which is ironically one of the places I would love to visit. I I feel horrible for insulting the community.
0: Colorism in Latin America goes back to the colonial era the Spaniards imposed a hierarchical, race-based caste system. The more European or light-skinned you were, the higher up you were. It was a system that excluded and discriminated against indigenous communities. And that exclusion persists today. Today, indigenous people in Latin America have lower life expectancy, less access to education, and lower earnings, according to the United Nations. And it's also had repercussions in terms of how Latinos see themselves. It was notable to me that Nuri grew up watching Univision and Telenovelas. I also grew up watching Telenovelas, and I was always taken aback by how almost all of the actors were white. You would think there were no indigenous people in Latin America if that's the only media you consumed. Do you think there's a colorism problem in Latino communities? Yes. Yes.
3: I think there is. I think we're getting better. And certainly my comments didn't help because they were insensitive, but I certainly think that That exists. It exists in other cultures as well.
0: So you you don't think, though, that you harbor a bias against people with darker skin? No way. Her words just confirms how racist
2: the other Mexican can be towards indigenous people.
0: Odilia Romero, the head of the indigenous human rights group Cielo, told me she wasn't surprised by how Nuri described Oaxacans.
2: I always say, like, we indigenous people from Oaxaca or from anywhere from Mesoamerica, we migrate with our food, with our music, with our prayers to our deities. They, too, migrate with their traditions, with their culture, with their music, with their racism. It doesn't stay there.
0: But she did feel like there was something fundamentally hypocritical in Nuri's insults.
2: You're the first woman to be the president of city council You've had this discourse of, you know, how Latinos get discriminated, how hard it is to be a Latina or a person of color, but you repeat exactly the same thing with us who are darker, but also people of color. You have a lot of white passing Latina privilege. We don't. And you have always claimed how you're fighting this racism, this discrimination, this structure, being the first woman. But you're exactly the same thing that you're fighting against. Like, why?
0: I had a similar question because it seemed to me like Nuri could see so clearly the ways she's been discriminated against in her life. But during our interview, it seemed like she couldn't understand that she is also capable of discriminating against others. I think it's really clear that you regret what you said, but I'm curious, looking back, why do you think you said that? Where was it coming from? Have you thought about why you said what you said? I've
3: thought about that particular day, God, a thousand times, if not more. I was so frustrated and so angry and so alone and so abandoned by everyone, particularly other members. And I think that over the two year and a half as council president, I just grew more frustrated and angry and pissed off at everything. And that's what you saw. That's it.
0: I understand the frustration, but I think there's like a difference between being frustrated and saying things that are insensitive, like you said. And what I'm trying to do with this interview is unpack sort of where the things were coming from. Do you think there's an anti-Blackness problem in the Latino community?
3: I don't know. I don't know if the league tapes have... Mm, I I can't—I don't know. I mean, that's a really good question. I never felt we had one on the council. Just speaking personally, my personal experience, that's all I can speak to.
0: Do you think that there is a conversation to be had about anti-blackness in the Latino community? Not in
3: my household. Those conversations have never—we've never had to have those conversations because we've never felt that way.
0: Throughout our interview, Nuri had been saying sorry— but not deeply engaging with my questions. So I decided to ask one last time. You know, one of the things that did happen was this larger conversation about how we talk about race in our communities. And in many ways, I think that part of it is good, like that we try to have. You know, know, I
3: wish I can dive more into that because what this has caused for me is I don't even know if I'm the right person to even have these conversations anymore. Because I've been tainted in such a way where I don't even know if I would even be welcome. Even in this conversation, I'm very worried and feel really scared and nervous to even dive into that. If that makes any sense. I'm not avoiding your yeah, question. But yeah, I, I'm, I, I'm just really scared to answer it. What if I say the wrong thing? And now we're back to square one. I do not know if today I am the right person to have those conversations Do I believe they need to be had? Yes. I just don't
0: know if I'm the right person to talk about this at this time. This felt like the first real thing she had said to me that day. I spent over two hours trying to get Nuri to talk about the systemic problems in our community. I wanted her to not only account for her words, but be able to show that she understood their weight and how they connected to a bigger story. And what she basically told me was she had no intention of going there. Next time on Imperfect Paradise. A lot has happened since the scandal broke a year ago. Kevin de Leon has stayed in office, and actually, he just announced that he will be running for re-election. Nuri, by the way, said that she supports Kevin's decision to not resign, but she doesn't think he's a racist. On October 6, Gil Cedillo filed a lawsuit against the LA County Federation of Labor and two of its former employees, saying the recording ruined his reputation and alleging negligence and invasion of privacy. Kevin also filed a separate lawsuit against the two Federation of Labor former employees. Last December, a young progressive Latina replaced Gilcevillo on the city council. Her name is Eunices Hernandez. Eunices represents a new wave of progressives on the city council. She says they're determined to help the most marginalized, not to sell people out. In the next episode, we'll hear more from Eunices and council member Nithya Rahman about their vision for healing divisions in the city.
7: There are a lot of people who think of themselves as progressives who have literally the opposite views from each other. I think identity politics in that way can constrain
2: us from meeting the needs of our district and the people who live there. Because time and time again, we've seen reflections of leaders who look like us, who are supposed to represent us, making decisions that totally throw our communities under the bus.
0: If you or someone you know needs immediate mental health counseling, you can dial 988 to reach the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. This episode of Imperfect Paradise was written and reported by me, Antonia Cerejido. Catherine Mailhouse is the executive producer of the show and our director of content development, Shayna naomi Krockmal, is our vice president of podcasts. Emily Guerin is the senior producer. Minju Park is our producer and scored this episode. Ali Bianco and Rebecca Katz were our interns. Jens Campbell is our production coordinator. Meg Kramer is our editor. Fact-checking by Caitlin Antonios. Mixing and original theme music by E. Scott Kelly. Music by Jay Valle, Ex-Manana, and Joseph Quiñones at Secondhand Sounds. Thanks to Donald Bass for engineering our interview with former City Council President Nuri Martinez. Our editorial team includes Tony Marcano, Frank Stoltz, Megan Garvey, and Kristen Muller. The Imperfect Paradise team also includes Natalie Chudnovsky and Emma Alabaster. Additional thanks to Erica Washington, Austin Cross, Julia Barajas, Sofia Palizakar, Annie Gilbertson, Geraldo Cadava, Frances Aparicio, Nadia Raymond, Fernanda Echavarri, and Carlene Galler. Imperfect Paradise is a production of Elias Studios. This podcast is powered by listeners like you, donating as little as $5 a month. And we can only keep making more episodes like this one with your partnership. Support this show by donating now at Elias.com slash join. This podcast is supported by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. Elias Studios operates within the homelands of the Gabrielino Tongva people. We recognize the painful history of displacement, settler colonialism, and erasure of the people, their language, and their sovereignty. Visit aliascom slash land for more information. We encourage you to get curious about the land on which you live and work. This program
7: is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.